Welcome to the Healthy Hair Podcast. Your host, Dr. Amy Brenner, is a board-certified OBGYN with additional certifications in functional and integrative medicine. This podcast is meant to help women find reliable, relevant information to help them feel better, look better, and live better. Here, you will hear in-depth information about hormones, sexual medicine, aesthetics, cosmetic gynecology, and functional medicine. Well, hello, all you women out there, especially the women that are listening to this podcast who are trying to be their healthiest version of yourself. Welcome back to another episode of Healthy Her. As more treatments and medications come out there to treat menopause and sexual wellness, um, sometimes there's a lot of confusion about this. And today we are joined by a true expert in the field of sexual medicine and menopause. Wait till you hear about the training and experience that Dr. Hajira Yasmin AKA Dr. Yaz has. And I think you're going to really like what we have in store for you today as we walk through this complicated world of the specialized field of menopause and sexual wellness. So welcome, Dr. Yaz. Oh, thank you, Dr. Brenner. Thank you for having me today. I really would enjoy my time with you today. And I love to talk everything about menopause and sexual wellness today. So let's dive in. Let's get in. So before we get into it, um, I know about your uh, experience and training, but if you could kind of go through what you've done to you know, put yourself out as an expert. And most of the people listening to this are actually patients, but I actually do have some, a lot of physicians that listen to it too, but. Yeah, I'm a board certified uh, OBGYN. I started off as a generalist about 20 years ago and uh, I have done residencies all across the world. I started my journey in India. Then I was a consultant OBGYN in England I moved from England here and I did my residency here and then I was a generalist for a couple of years, but then my interest was more into Eurogyne to begin with, where I deal with bladder and prolapse, incontinence in women, and uh, also doing minimal invasive surgery. So I became certified as a Da Vinci robotic surgeon about seven years ago. And uh, I was doing a lot of surgeries and also delivering babies, just like any OBGYN. But then I was intrigued by the questions I was asked by my patients when they're going through that perimenopause, like, what? why am I getting this brain fog? My, my sex desire or drive is low after you did my hysterectomy or removed my ovaries. Or, uh, or I've had my baby two years ago and my libido is low and uh, I, I, I didn't have good answers. I have to say, doing OBGYN residency, whether it's in the United States or United Kingdom or Southeast Asia, there is very little education on menopause medicine and sexual medicine yeah. across the board. And that really made me think oh my God, like this woman is 45 years old and she's sitting in front of me and all I can talk is about an estrogen cream in the vagina and I can't really talk about desire. I don't know much about it. So I took this- You know, I'm just going to interrupt you right there. I think every OBGYN that I've had on this podcast and talked anything as it relates to menopause or sexual wellness reiterated what you just said is you would think as an OBGYN residency, we would get that training, but- Every person says, nope, 
got nothing. And nothing. Yeah. Absolutely nothing. And you know, we talk about a lot about pregnancies, contraception, how do we prevent STIs or sexually transmitted infections and how to do surgeries like beautiful uncomplicated surgeries but we don't talk about hmm. what happens to that woman after 40 like she's delivered she's had surgeries or she's had breast cancer or she's had some chronic illness and she went into early menopause at 42 or 43 what do you what do you how do you take care of that woman till she's alive so I dived into human sexuality, like more into what is sexuality in a woman? How do we talk to these women have going through different sexual challenges? So when I was in attending in Wisconsin and uh, I set up a clinic called Women's Intimacy Clinic because uh, that was a nightmare to set up because it was in the middle of nowhere. It was central rural Wisconsin. And I had this proposal to the board of directors saying uh, I was working under a large health system. So I set up that by really having a battle to put this uh, proposal, go through an entire board of director meeting multiple times to approve this because they didn't see there was a need for menopause and sexual hmm. wellness. You know, they how, just how long thought, ago was this? This was in 2014 or 2013. 13. Yeah. So I kind of said, you know, they said, oh, you're doing surgeries, you're doing, you're delivering babies. I mean, uh, what can you do? And, you know, my, my board, my chair was uh, at that time, he was a oncologist. So it was kind of a battle for me for an, on for an oncologist to approve uh, intimacy clinic. But anyway, long story short, I got it approved. The clinic opened uh, known as Women's Intimacy Clinic. I was a medical director. And at, the, at that point, I said I need to go dive into you know, sexuality in women, sexual changes across age span. So I enrolled myself in a human sexuality program in University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And it was a one-year post-grad program, how to be a good sexuality counselor. So I have to say that one-year program gave me more pulse and wisdom about how to navigate challenges about low desire. How do you treat women with different sexual orientation or gender identities? And how do you approach these challenges in a sensitive way, like, you know, non-judgmental, throw away your own sexual scripts? and really walk into that consultation room and listen to the patient. So I think my counseling skills really improved once I became a sexuality counselor. And then I subsequently got certified by the ASECT, which is a very hard process for doctors to be certified. I think they need about uh, 30 to 50 hours of um, uh, didactics and then 15 hours of supervision uh, training. So I got certified as an ASECT certified sexuality counselor because doctors cannot become um, therapists, so they have to be counselors. So I got that certified in 2019. And then I became certified by the NAMS. I had to read the entire menopause um, medicine book. I had to see what are the changes happening, why does a woman go through menopause, what happens to her sexual health, and I got certified by the NAMS. And um since then, I have to say I have been very active in the North American Menopause Society and International Society for Sexual and Women's Health. I'm sure you're there on that too, right, Dr. Yes. Brenner, the issue yes. is. Mm -hmm. And uh, ASECT, I just attended a recent conference in ASECT. So ASECT is a huge governing body for sexual health in our country here. Um, being in all these three big organizations has kind of given me 
the exposure to what is happening at those uh, front lines of sexual health for women and menopausal health. So I'm really, really grateful for where I am. And uh, I set up this own little private practice. It's nothing too big, but a very small niche clinic here in Raleigh after I left Wisconsin two and a half years ago. So you have certainly put in a lot of time and effort to enhance your education. And I'm sure you you probably have more to offer now compared to what you did in the early 2000s, along with myself of, you know, I think of what I used to say 15 to 20 years ago when patients would tell me about decreased libido. And the only, I, I hated that question a couple decades. I hated it, um, first of all. And because the only thing I would tell them is, well, you need to go on a date with your husband. And it wasn't working for me. Um, and I think then people felt dismissed. And I'm sure you, along with myself, have a lot of patients coming in who are dismissed by their doctors. Absolutely. And and I will tell you, low libido or low sexual drive or HSDD in today's world and sexual pain are the two big things I treat in my clinic right now. And those were the two things I was treating even in Wisconsin, like for the last seven, eight years. Sexual pain or, uh, I mean, in, uh, in our medical terms would be dyspareunia, but in different forms like vulvodynia, vulva pain, vaginal pain, bladder pain, any pelvic pain, you know, I, I treat that a lot. And then low libido is another big area of sexual wellness that I treat in my current setting. So those two alone, I bet you and I could talk about each of those topics alone for just an hour. But let's just do a little sidebar and talk about dyspareunia or sexual pain of what are some common causes and then what are some common treatments or tools that you use in your practice to help women with this, this issue of dyspareunia? Yeah, yeah. I, I see like perimenopause and menopause women. Uh, in that age group, what I see is what is called as GSM. I know the old term is vulvovaginal atrophy, but in these people, it's called genitourinary syndrome of menopause. Usually, it is like um, the vaginitis or some inflammation, and recurrent yeast is another thing that has resulted in vulvodynia or vestibular pain in the vestibule, and I treat that, and I also treat atrophy in the vagina, which is like thinning of the lining of the uh, skin of the vaginal canal, and uh, inflammation. I mean, it really varies in terms of sexual pain. I do a very detailed vulva exam, like a vulvoscopy, and I see if there's any inflammation on the clitoral hood or if there is any inflammation in the vestibule. If she is really having something like vulvodynia because she is putting up with this dyspareunia or painful intercourse for so many years that it has become almost like a centrally sensitized pain. So my tools really depend on what the etiology is or what the cause of that pain is. If, if it is simple atrophy, we have far more medications today than just giving a tube of Premarin or uh, estrogen cream. So I go from uh, oral medication like Osfina or Ospimaphine to uh, Intrarosa, which is vaginal DHEA, 
versus um, estrogen in different forms. I mean, sometimes Premarin and Estrace cream doesn't get approved. So I'm open to even like bioidentical compounded estrogen cream that I use for women who are either sensitive or who cannot uh, afford to use Premarin because for yes. some of them it's like $300. Yes. Yeah, which is which is a shame. Yeah, you know? and those 90. medicines have been around for so long. The topical Premarin cream and Estrace cream is, I say they're air quotes covered, um, end air quotes, but you're right. It's sometimes a lot less expensive to just pay out of pocket for a compounded estrogen yes, or estradiol, estradiol, estradiol cream. Yes, absolutely. So I don't want to resort to compounding being practicing evidence-based medicine, I try to stay away from compounded estrogen cream, but if I have to, and if I, I if my patient can't sustain by using a one tube of Premarin for $300 and she runs out of it in two months and then she ends up back in atrophy and sexual pain, I would rather prescribe that compounding cream to make it affordable and sustainable treatment for her. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I I usually write a prescription and say, if it's going to be cost prohibitive, call me back. Please don't pay for this and we will find an alternative for you. Yes, absolutely. Now, saying that, there is another medication called Invexi. I don't know if you use that in your practice, Dr. Brenner. I use that as well. It's a bioidentical um, estrogen insert. It's about 10 micrograms. And it is very superior. The absorption is great. I don't get women coming back saying they have some residue, like the way they have with the estrogen creams. The, uh, and, uh, and and they do great. I mean, I, I don't know. I have not studied this, but I think the reversal in the way the vaginal lining is changing, the pH is changing the vagina, may be happening a little, little bit faster because I see, I mean, this is just anecdotal because, you know, my patients come back and tell me, oh my God, the suppository that you prescribed to me, I I feel great. Like my sex, my intercourse or my external stimulation or whatever I'm engaging in my sexual experiences, I don't have pain. Like within two or three weeks, they note that change. So hmm. I prescribed I have, that. Yeah, I have not used a lot of Invexi. Have you had issues with... Uh cost and coverage with that? Um, I used to have it when I was in Wisconsin, like when I started that about three or four years ago. But now I think I go through a specialty pharmacy and I can I can message you later. I don't know. which. Uh, one we have is. a great specialty pharmacy that we use for all these uh, all these new drugs. So which I'd love to get into talking about those when we talk about libido as well. But go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So Invexi, no, I think they're doing fine. I have not heard that there is a coverage issue yet. But though Intrarosa, I do run into problems with that. Sometimes it gets declined by the insurance and I cannot get it covered. But it is a very good medication because I take care of cancer survivors too, like the breast cancer survivors and uterine cancer and ovarian cancer, and all these patients, when they come in with severe sexual pain or atrophy, I collaborate with your oncologist and I speak to them and I say, hey, why can I give them a short course of intrarosa or vaginal DHEA? And uh, sometimes we both have a little discussion, me and the oncologist, and we come up to an understanding that, yeah, maybe six to eight weeks of intrarosa rather than estrogen. And they respond beautifully. I just wish we had a study of intrarosa just in cancer survivors. You know, I, 
I, I'm sure somebody is looking at this, but uh, I would be happy to contribute to that data because I have treated a lot of women with uh, cancer, breast cancer, especially breast cancer with intrarosa, reversing wonderfully in about six to 12 weeks on uh, intrarosa or DHE. Yeah, we've definitely come so far. You know, I think when you and I are in residency, the only option was Premer and Cream, and now there, there are so many options. Um, so we've come so far, but there's still such a long way to go. Um, let's switch gears and talk a little bit about decreased libido and uh, when it when it's a problem. When should somebody seek care for it? Do you do any workup or test? And and what tools do you have in, in your toolbox more than just go on a date with your husband of what I used to say in the <laughs> early 2000s? Yes, yes. Oh, my God. There's so much, isn't it? We could talk one hour on this topic. Yes. Yeah. So I am a huge believer that um, low libido or HSDD, I mean, the new term is hypoactive sexual desire disorder. It's a medical diagnosis. And uh, I recommend women if they are having low libido at whatever stage of their life they need to seek help this is not something that you can push it on your back burner or like the way the doctors used to say have a glass of wine or go for a date with your husband and it will be fixed because it's not Mm -mm. after going through the sexuality medicine course as a sexuality counselor in michigan i realized that HSDD really has to be looked in under a lens of biopsychosocial, which means to me as a doctor, the bio piece is you and me, okay? Dr. Brenner, Dr. Yasmin, and there's so many other sex med gynecologists around the country. They are looking at the biology piece of this low libido. So is there is there a low hormones? Is she low on estrogen? Is she low on testosterone? Or is there any inflammation happening in the clitoral area or the labia or the vestibule? Or is there atrophy in the vagina? So we go through every piece of your organ or your genitals to make sure there is no breakage in the normal functioning of that organ, which is whether external or internal. Then I look into psychosocial lens as well, because low libido can be impacted by relationship difficulties, by psychological issues like trauma or, or say, some kind of a resentment or something, something that is coming in between, I mean, in that relationship, whether it is your partner, in, whether it's a heterosexual, homosexual, cisgender, any kind of a, hetero, whether it's a heteronormative relationship or not. We look into your psychology of that relationship, the psychological piece in both the partners. And then I also look into social surroundings, like what is your social surrounding for you having low libido? Like what is your lifestyle? Do you go to work? I don't know how many hours of work are you doing? What's your lifestyle? Do you really have something called pleasure in your life? I mean, is it just, forget about sexual pleasure, because after a certain point, after procreation or pregnancies or babies, sex is mainly a, a, a thing about pleasure. You, you really want to engage in sexual relationship to enjoy and really enjoy the bliss of life, to be that emotionally close to your partner. And, and, and that closeness comes with sexual intimacy. And for that to happen, 
what is your social surroundings like? What is your lifestyle? And are you having that privacy? I mean, do you have like kids at home? Do you have in-laws? Do you have some obstacles to acquire that pleasure or to get, or to get that goal satisfied? So I dive very deep into that psychosocial aspects as well. And I have sex therapists who are linked with my clinic. I used to have a huge network in Wisconsin, all the ASEC certified sex therapists. I collaborate with them. And I usually link about one or two of them with my office in uh, Wisconsin. And I have another couple here in Raleigh. And the moment I know it is beyond my scope of practice as a sexuality counselor and I need a therapist, I usually send their referral to my therapist and I talk to them. I talk to my therapist every month, like every month I have a meeting with them and I say, hey, you're taking care of this patient and I'm treating her for low libido with this medication. She had inflammation and what are you doing for her? So the 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 therapies that the sex therapists usually are doing for my patients are like EMDR for any kind of trauma or they're doing something called a sensate focus. And I, as a doctor, was trained how to do sensate focus when I went to Michigan for this sexuality counselor course. I run a very brief kind of um, um, detail about how to do sensate focus between you and your partner. It's mainly, it's an intimate exercise. It's a physical exercise where you don't just jump into um, sexual intercourse or some sexual experience, you just go very slow in five stages. Like you, there's non-genital touching. You're mainly getting out of your mind into your body. It is something like mindful awareness of your sensations, of your feelings about each other's touch. Like, you know, you, you touch a non-genital area, then you touch a genital area, then you see what desires pop up. You're, you're mainly getting out of that spectatoring aspect of your brain into your own body. And you're just realizing, okay, he's touching me on my neck. What am I feeling? So it's a very mindful exercise and it comes in five steps. And I have written those things down. I just give that to my patients. I explain to them. And if they still are struggling, I get hold of my sex therapist and I send them there. So that is one aspect about uh, low libido. So the psychosocial aspect and the medical aspect. I use everything, Dr. Brenner. I, I, I look at the testosterone in postmenopausal women. And if they are really low, the total testosterone, I don't know. If you came across the Ishwish uh, statement on the use of testosterone for postmenopausal women with low desire, you know, yes. so I do use testosterone in them, and uh, I also use Bilisi a lot and uh, Flibanserine. I um, and, and and I love both those medications, especially for the right people. Um, and I have to say, I have used flibanserine in breast cancer survivors as well, and I have seen phenomenal results. Yeah, can you call it flibanserine for people who don't know it? I think that has another name that people might know a little bit better. Yes, it is called Addy. It's the yes. pink pill. It is yes. the pink pill. Yes, I love the color pink. Um, so it is called the pink pill, and uh, it is an oral medication, and uh, it can be taken at bedtime. It is pretty simple. When I started using this about five years ago when, uh, in Wisconsin, there was a warning about uh, not to combine alcohol. I had to sign, make my patients sign an agreement. It's called the REMS agreement, where they would tell me, 
oh, Dr. Yaz, I'm not going to touch alcohol. Can you give me this for 12 weeks? I typically used to give them for eight weeks or 12 weeks to see if they respond. But now I don't do that. And I think the company put out that saying we don't need to do the REMS agreement now. But I still warn them about the alcohol. I tell them if you take more than two to three drinks, standard alcoholic drinks that night, just to skip that pill for that night. Otherwise, they can do that for eight weeks. And my patients show a good response. I have some of them who have even lost weight and they sleep better and their encounters, sexual encounters have increased every month. And how do I decide if this person wants it? I run, my tool is a DSDS um, screener. I don't do an extensive FSFI. I don't know if you do that, Dr. Brenner, but I just do a decreased sexual desire screener, which is like this, um, it's a standard screener, like five questions, just to make sure that you don't have a medical illness or a psychological or a psychiatric illness that's interfering with your low libido. And also to make sure that this low libido or hypoactive sexual desire disorder is impacting you and causing you distress for yourself or interpersonal, like, you know, in in a relationship. It's making you feel sad. It's making you feel depressed, angry, frustrated, and it's causing you a personal distress. I just have to make sure that these things are going on with you, and then I'm happy to start you on these medications. That's how I screen patients. Right. I love that you talk about the social aspect, because although we do have these two medications that are FDA approved, as well as testosterone that is not FDA approved, so we do have medical tools, but I love that you uh, talk about the social aspect and also for the right patients uh, refer to a sex sex therapist, because it, it's a complicated topic. Um Uh, you know, when I'm limited for time, I say it's complicated is, you know, things such as is my bedroom clean can affect my libido for the night. Um, Or is my is my has my partner done the dishes? I'm I'm angry tonight. You know, I, I really resent that he didn't do the dishes and I have to do all of this and come upstairs to my bedroom. So there are there is a it is so complicated like we really have to find comet. We have to tease it out to see what exactly is happening before we throw these medications. Because what happens as sex med gynecologist is when we give these medications without screening, these patients will come back to us and tell us these medications don't work, you know, because, because the, the problem is the root problem is different. You know, there's something else going on and we are trying to fix your neurotransmitters in your brain and we are trying to recreate that good balance of dopamine in your brain. That's not going to cut it. Yeah. With um, the two medications that are FDA approved for premenopausal women with um, sex drive issues, I feel it's hard to know who it's going to help. I, in my experience, I might say it's 50-50. I have some patients who are like, no, this really helped me. I love it. And other people eh, didn't do anything for me. Have you found any way to, I mean, after you rule out um, the other things you just, all the other things you just mentioned, um, have you been able to pinpoint like you're the person that this is most likely to help? 
Yeah. You know, for me, it's been like 60, 40. I have to say Addy has shown a little bit better response, maybe because I'm using it even in cancer survivors off-label. I'm using also in some of my postmenopausal. I know it is marketed for premenopausal. So my usage is a little bit wider with Addy. So I think I am seeing a much better response with flibanserine. Uh, compared to Vilisi. The reason Vilisi I'm holding back in the uh, postmenopausal or people or some other group of people is because of hypertension and some cardiac issues or if they've had some atrial fibrillation or some kind of uh, arrhythmia problems, I kind of back off on Vilisi. Whereas Addy, I'm giving more. So I see much better response with Vilisi. I mean, it's marginally better than uh, I mean, Addy marginally better than my, uh, I mean, I meant flibanserine is better. Addy is better than by Lacey. That's what I'm seeing in my practice. I just haven't had a lot of patients that are interested in Vilesi because Vilesi is a, it's not a daily, it's not a daily pill. It's a, you're right. It's a shot. It's an injectable and, and you have to time it. So yes, yes, uh, 35 minutes before. So can you imagine? I mean, that's really a disruptor. <laughs> yes, as well as I've had a, a good amount of even employees that tried it that had significant nausea. Um, even I, even I tried it, and and I think I was like dry heaving. I'm like, this is a weird place to be where I'm, you know, retching, but I have a high libido. Yes. No, I I always, that's so weird. It is. You know, I give Zofran. I do give Zofran. I have to admit, every time I script yes. out Vilesi, I give a rapid dissolve uh, Zofran and I send those patients. And uh, one patient just called me recently to report injection site reaction. I've never heard of that for like last couple of years. And she said she developed a little like a hive and a wheel after she injected. So I just told her to take some cetrazine or Benadryl and she was fine. But they they do report there is some injection site redness or reactions can happen. So as you said, Dr. Brenner, it is on demand and it is an auto injectable and it is to be taken 45 minutes before sexual encounter. And you cannot take more than one injection in a day and not more than eight injections in a month. So it has a few limitations more than Addy. So I guess um, many people in this space of practice where you and I are, are not really using Vilesi as often as Addy. Have you ever used them both? Uh, no, not at the same time, one after the other. Yes, I have. Because the Addy, uh, there was a patient who did not respond to Addy and I gave Vilesi and she did great on that. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you have time to switch over to talk a little bit about menopause and hormone replacement therapy for the postmenopausal women. Yeah, 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 sure. We can do that. Yeah. So I don't know if you just saw even just a couple of days ago that the NAMS, which is the North American Menopause Society, released some new guidelines um, and really kind of just, in my opinion, is moving the pendulum back the other way of how how it was in we'll say the 90s which was um pre versus whi yeah, yeah. pre-whi which um i did a podcast uh, extensively where we just talked about the whi so if you don't know what i'm talking about um which is a big study that came out in 2002 called the women's health initiative 
highly recommend you go back and listen to that um, podcast of what we're talking about. But in a nutshell, when that study came out, it really caused a lot, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of women to stop taking their hormone replacement therapy, which in my opinion is just a huge detriment and so many women missed out. Mm-hmm. I agree. I 100% Dr. Brenner. I think it was a flawed study and I'm so glad that I and you are in today's world, in today's generation. You know, I have to say that study, when you look at it, it was all done. I mean, I'm sure you've spoken about this in your podcast, but it was done just for your audience. It was done in older women, 63 and above or 65. And we used synthetic uh, pill called Prempro, which was medroxy, progesterone acetate and uh, Premarin. Today, 20 years down the line, we have come a long way in the medications that we have, just as in sexual health, the topic, the medications that we both spoke, we have bioidentical, FDA-approved bioidentical medications, hormones, estrogen, and progesterone available in retail pharmacies today. We, we can prescribe that to our patients. So I guess to compare those adverse effects and deny women hormone replacement therapy in perimenopause and menopause, I think it's something not right at all in my book. Absolutely. But what amazes me is even in 2022, there are still so many OBGYNs who are taking women off of their hormones and withholding hormone replacement therapy because they say it's unsafe. And they're with as with any medication, we just got talking about other medications, everything has potential risks. Um but I think the the NAM guidelines, and correct me if I'm wrong, that recently came out that for most women, the benefits of taking hormone replacement therapy by far outweigh risks for most women. Absolutely. 100%. Benefit risk ratio is so big for women between 50 to 60. I mean, we have to say within 10 years of your last menstrual period, the timing hypothesis I'm a huge proponent of that. I have patients in perimenopause who are on hormone replacement therapy. You don't need to stop a menstrual period to really go on hormone replacement therapy if you're struggling. I actually commented on a post yesterday on one of our OBGYN groups on the social saying that you don't need that badge of honor of stopping your periods for 12 months and then go on hormone replacement therapy, but you have hot flashes, you have night sweats, you have brain fog, you have vaginal dryness, you have low libido, your weight is going up, and you're miserable. And and you are still being denied hormone replacement therapy by your OBGYN, your internist, your family medicine doctor because of the risks that they have studied from 20 years ago from this study. So I think the study has done enough damage for us to really erase everything from people's memories. People like Dr. Brenner, myself, and a few other menopause specialists across the country are trying to rewrite this story, but it will take time. Yes, it still amazes me. It was 20 years ago, and we are still working very hard to dispel those myths. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. I'm with you there. I, I, I fight on this every day. So it's kind of a 
you know, a sad thing. Let me ask you this, since you, I think you mentioned that you're on some administrative administrative boards at NAMS. Is I think NAMS does a great thing, and they're doing what they can to shift those that pendulum and educate doctors that in general hormones are a good thing. But if you can comment on, I still see so much talk in NAMS about progestins and using progestins in hormone replacement therapy. And I have yet, I I don't understand in 2022, why is somebody using a progestin for hormone hormone therapy rather than progesterone? And so if you can comment on that, but first we probably have to go back and maybe re-educate our listeners of what we're talking about, progestin versus progesterone. Yes, I will say I am with you on this, Dr. Brenner. I always give progesterone. So what we are talking here today is the Women's Health Initiative that was done, that huge study in 2002, they used a synthetic hormone. We, every woman has got this hormone coming from her ovary in the later half of the cycle, and that is called progesterone, which means it's a natural progesterone that comes after ovulation. Whereas we, the manufacturer or the big drug pharma, created a progesterone synthetically, and it is called progestin. And this is the progestin that was present in Prempro, which was the medication that was used in that study. But today, we are able to give progesterone, which is bioidentical. And what is this bioidentical? When I say bioidentical, people get into a tizzy about creams and they think about uh, is it um, what's what was her name? The celebrate uh, celebrity. What is his name? Yes. Heather Som- Suzanne Summers. I was telling Heather Summers. No, Suzanne Summers. So she wrote a book on this, and people say, "Oh my God!" Like the doctors are promoting her book, and they want to talk about bioidentical, and everybody kind of gets into a tizzy. But that's not true. Bioidentical really means progesterone is exactly similar in its molecular structure, chemical structure to your ovarian hormone that you were making before menopause or during menopause. So we have that available today in in our current laboratories. They are making that and they're using plant source like wild yams. So we have not studied that. There are few random, I think there must be a bunch of case studies out there that show progesterone, which is the natural progesterone, has no negative side effects on the breast. So the breast tissue does not proliferate faster and does not result like in breast cancer or hyperplasia, like a precancer stage, if that woman is taking progesterone and not progestin. Because with progestin is what we saw the bad effects on the breast from that WHI study. So we do have available progesterone and I use only progesterone. I don't touch progestin at all because I have to admit this is a little bit of TMI. If I have to use this myself, I use progesterone. I don't touch progestin and I don't give my patients progestin. So that's why... Never. because Never. Ha- Why would anybody well, use that in this day and age? Exactly. But, but I still see people coming in on Prempro or 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 these medicines. Yes, so. they do. They do come on Prempro. They come on uh, all this Duai and all the new medications, the uh, com- combination pills of HRT. They all have synthetic progestins in them. Um, the other thing I have seen when people come on Prempro, I think the, the problem with synthetic uh, drugs are the hormones, I have to say, is breast uh, pain, 
weight gain and uh, bloated sensation, and sometimes they have headaches and uh, breast pain. So when I shift them to bioidentical estradiol and progesterone, patients feel a lot better. Yes. And 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 so I'm a I'm a huge proponent of uh, FDA approved bioidenticals. So I I know I hear you. I'm 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 on the same page with you on that. Yeah. So that's my only criticism of NAMs is there's still there's still a lot of talk about progestins. I'm like, why are we still talking about this? So, but you know, I think with every every conference I go to, you know, that's why there's not a cookbook for medicine is. I get some information here. I get some information here. Um, even Suzanne Summers, you know, she's a movie star who became a hormone expert. Like, there's a lot of things that she says that I like. Um, I don't agree with everything she says, but what she did do that's great is educate a lot of women, or at least uh, but they shed the light on the shed the light. Therapy. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and, and she I, also and I agree. And she also does a lot of uh, lifestyle talk of food and that type diet of thing and, and uh, diet exercise and lifestyle yeah no i agree i think um in a nutshell for us to thrive during menopause we as doctors we will give you the right hormones we will dose you the right hormones as dr brenner says it's not one size fits all we have to like 10 of my patients will have 10 different doses of hormone therapy based on how she responds to that particular dose and whether we are going to give you a pill, whether we are going to give you a patch, a gel, or a spray. It depends on what uh, suits that person. But eventually, it's it's everything. It's your lifestyle factors. It's your exercise. It's your diet. It's your movement. How much movement are you doing in a day? And how are you managing your stress? So I think it's a very holistic approach for menopause and perimenopause. And that is the time that comes in our life to tweak these lifestyle issues along with diet and exercise, and then take the right dose of hormones. And and that leads you to a better half, you know, your better version of yourself in the later four decades of your life. Because we literally live average life expectancy about 88, 90 years of age. So if you go in menopause at 50, you got there another three to four decades in front of you in menopause. Yes. yes. So you hit the nail on the head there is it it's so important. And I think that hormones are like the basics of health, just like you mentioned, along with diet and exercise and sleep. So this was so informative. I hope everybody got a lot out of this and it continues on uh, Dr. Yaz and I's mission of educating and dispelling those myths of hormone therapy and libido and all these things we can help you with. So Dr. Yaz, where can everybody find you? I um, I have a website uh, for my practice. It's called www.alraymd.com. And I'm there on the Facebook as Dr. Hachira Yasmin. I am there on Instagram. I try to put out small snippets of um, uh, what do you call those reels? I know I'm, I'm learning all those things. Um, uh, and I do a little educational videos on uh, hormone therapy, on menopause, on sexual wellness on Instagram as Dr. MD, And I'm on the same uh, handle on TikTok and uh, LinkedIn. Oh, you're uh, even on TikTok. 
Good for you. I know. I don't know. I just got on to that. But it is somewhere where people need to listen to about menopause, Dr. Brenner. I think um, experts in menopause medicine, we are the people who take care of women in exam rooms. We need to get out of exam rooms and really advocate for women putting out science-backed information. And if we don't do this, who's going to do it? I mean, that was my rationale to get on social media. I wasn't a very big uh, person on social media. But since I am doing this uh, work in menopause and sexual medicine, I mean, everybody knows about pregnancy. Everybody knows about hysterectomies and surgeries, which I was doing as a generalist. But when I'm doing this special work in menopause and sexual health, I said I need to get out and really give the correct information to women out there so they can get educated and seek the right information from their doctors or their menopause specialist. Yeah, this was so helpful. We'll put all the links in the show notes so people can find you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Brenna. I really enjoyed. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Her. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and the web. Go to www dramybrenner.com to learn more. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute as medical advice, the practice of medicine, nursing or other healthcare services. No patient-physician relationship is formed. The information in the podcast and any references, material or links are at the sole discretion of the listener and not meant to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Listeners should not delay or disregard obtaining medical advice for any medical issues or diagnoses that they may have and should seek medical advice from their healthcare provider for any such conditions.